Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, everybody. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I said that four times. <laughs> but I'm really, really excited about the, the new year and what's going to happen to you all. A lot of you have sent me emails about your ambitions, your goals, and I'm eager to keep you accountable to make sure that you're doing that. So I hope that you haven't fallen off yet. And if you have fallen off, that's okay. Because you know why? You have this moment to start over and pick it back up. Because there is no one path to success. But the one thing that you can't control is the action that you have and you decide to implement right now. So I hope you're uh, implementing that positive action towards your goal. But let's go to today's episode. Today's episode is with Shane Hughes, and he talks about an ego-free leadership type of format. And it's very interesting. I mean, for a lot of people that listen to the show, you might be working in companies where leaders have you know several ego-driven personalities that might be detrimental to the business. Shane here talks about how to approach leadership from an ego-free perspective. We talk about the four dysfunctions that he says we should avoid, dismissing feedback, the blame game, us versus them, and avoiding conflict. Also, he wrote the book in a very interesting strategic way, so can't wait for you to find out how we did that. Once again, just a quick mention, Thought Leader Academy enrollment is still open. I'll be mentioning Thought Leader Academy until the 14th when we close enrollment, but it's for heart-centered entrepreneurs and change makers who truly want to take their message and amplify it, who want to learn how to get paid to speak on stages, who want to learn how to attract the right type of attention, and also who people who want to know how to define a brand in such a way where it attracts the right tribe and ultimately spawns a movement that changes the world. We're all in this to make a difference, and we're all in this to discover what our purpose is, and that's what this course aims to do. So I hope to see you in Academy. But for now, check out the episode. In a world where very few people embrace their global identity and seek to understand their neighbors, cross-cultural expert Tayo Roxon is on a mission to bridge this divide. Each week, he'll open your mind with insights from some of the global minds in the world. Get ready, take some notes, and learn how to be the best you that you can be. Welcome everybody to another episode of As Told by Nomads, and today's guest is Shane Hughes. Shane is the author of a new book called Ego-Free Leadership, 
ending the unconscious habits that hijack your business. This is a fascinating book because it follows the journey of a particular leadership team over the course of seven years. And we're going to extract some lessons uh, and unpack them throughout the interview. But let me tell you a little bit about Shane. Shane is the president of Learning as Leadership, a 30-year-old leadership development and culture change company based in San Francisco Bay Area. Shane's expertise in creating cultures of open communication and collaboration has led to substantial improvements in the organizational and personal performance for such clients as Fairchild Semiconductor, NASA, Sandia National Laboratories, Shell Oil, and many, many more. He's also co-authored a book with former clients, and he's been a featured speaker at the San Francisco Commonwealth Club, a frequent presenter at Systems Thinking in Action, and has given many corporate keynotes. This is going to be fascinating because... This is a unique spin on a book where we actually get to work with a particular protagonist uh, or antagonist and, and learn about everything that could be possibly learned through a seven-year journey. Welcome to the show, Shane. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you, Tim. <laughs> Pleasure's mine. So tell me more about this concept. You know, you, you flipped traditional book writing on its head and, and, and you decided to focus on, on one particular leadership team as opposed to many. So talk to me through, talk me through the process. Well, the, I'm, you know, I, I operate and our company is in the, is in the leadership space and there's a lot of books that get written and <clears throat> with no offense to anyone, I see that I have a hard time reading them because the, the concepts and the material that people write, um, is, is fascinating and important. And yet, it, it, you know, at the end of the day, when I'm reading in my discretionary time, it can be hard to, uh, to slog through a book. And I noticed that, you know, the one book that, you know, the books that are easy to read are like Patrick Lencioni or Leadership and Self-Deception is another great book that are story-oriented. And um, I had just finished working on a memoir, uh, <clears throat> and it was, it was my first book, and I was getting that behind me and thinking, how can I write about the work that we do? And it occurred to me that if I wrote a book that I wouldn't want to read, it wasn't going to go anywhere because when you're, you're little known, um, who's going who's gonna, to you know, recommend a book if they don't finish it? And so my angle on this book was to actually follow the CEO of this company, uh, Brandon Black. I had, at this point, we had been working with together for about six or seven years. So I was reaching the end of a long leadership and culture change uh, engagement with him and his company, which is a publicly traded company uh, on NASDAQ in the financial services industry. And so I pitched him, hey, let's follow your journey as a leader, your your difficulties and challenges with your team, and then what we did in the culture, because I felt that a lot of what he went through, uh, you know, the, the resistance, the difficulties, the challenges, the setbacks, you know, the failures and obstacles that become leverages and, and um, uh, movement forward was actually indicative of how our work unfolds with people, but that it would allow the reader to actually engage in a journey. And so it's, it's been, um, uh, it's, it's been encouraging because a lot of people have just said to me that, you know, that I don't know and that aren't familiar with our work. First, I totally related to Brandon. Like, oh my God, it's like you're writing about me. Right. Um, you know, I'm writing notes in the margins about stuff that I do. And, um, and then, as I come in and I, so each chapter is a, is a back and forth between, uh, his story and then my comments. I try to keep my, my observations uh, brief, um, and to the point. And I'm, and I'm basically uh, drawing insight out of what he's going through. And so it's a really, it's a back and forth way 
Whereas as a person said to me, it reads like a novel. So I, you know, I couldn't put it down or I, you know, I read it on a plane trip. Um, so in that sense, it's, um, it's both hopefully insightful and engaging. No, uh, no, it definitely is. And I've, I've, you know, I got a chance to look at some excerpts and I, I loved what I, I, you know, I could see. And it sounds like you and, and Black are, you know, you've come to this conclusion that, you know, I guess companies must, every organization must decide whether they're going to be determined by an ego driven culture or one that is ego free. So what is the difference between both? Yeah. Well, so let's define ego first, because I think that's a word that we use a lot. And we use a lot even today as we, um, you know, uh, um, talk about uh, political leadership and all that. So ego, we define it as a preoccupation with self-worth. So in any given, um, you know, scenario I'm in, a uh, board meeting, uh, working with a client, uh, presenting a project to my boss, um, interacting with, uh, you know, my spouse or partner or children in a call like this, there's a part of our brain that's chirping away in the background that's constantly evaluating our competence, our value, whether or not you're judging me, um, if I'm doing well. And sometimes that voice is like a little nagging. And sometimes it's so loud that we can't think anymore. Like it blots out reality. And so it turns out that this voice uh, actually does a lot more damage than we realize. And it drives a lot more behavior than we realize. And um, for people that are familiar with that, that mind chatter or inner critic, they, you know, they, they realize that sometimes it seems like it's there all the time. And that um, voice is constantly on the lookout for, for danger and wanting to protect ourselves or prove ourselves. And we don't live in the savanna anymore. So most of the dangers that we feel today are um, social in nature you know, around respect and judgment and success or failure. And so uh, that actually causes us to uh, react in self-protective ways a lot. So if you look at most unhelpful or unproductive behaviors, procrastination, conflict avoidance, or, um, you know, getting angry, jumping to conclusions, um, these are all behaviors that are in fact are driven by a preoccupation with my competence and value right. in the moment. Right. And so the, so the problem is that when I'm focused on my value and my competence, uh, A, I'm not actually focused on my purpose. I'm not actually putting my energy into my goals. I'm putting my energy into preserving my sense of well-being. Um, and sometimes those two things can really be in contradiction. And second, spread across an entire organization, a whole bunch of people that are out for themselves first may cause one or two people to be individual stars, but it actually generates a culture of um, judgment and internal competition, us versus them dynamics, turf wars, and um, conflict avoidance. And uh, so all of that ends up meaning that typically in most organizations, uh, I would say that we're, we're getting something less than half of the human potential in an organization. Like it's not a 10% problem. It's more like a 60 or 70% problem. That's so people are really busy, but they're not actually busy with what matters. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, from what, what I'm hearing, it sounds like many employees, um, you know, they're talented or, and hardworking, but they're basically, they've underperformed in their potential. And 
going through some of the stuff that you've done, you, you believe that there are four dysfunctions, right? That causes these talented and hardworking individuals to underperform in the potential. So can we talk about uh, the four dysfunctions? Sure, let's do that. So, so uh, yeah, uh, first of all, dismissing feedback, I think, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yes. So this is, we all know that um, it's good to be a learner. And it's good to um, be open to feedback from other people and um, getting feedback at performance review time is, is helpful. Listening to our spouse or partner is a good thing. So as in most things, it's not with the theory, it's with the practice. And when you're giving me feedback, what, that's, what that typically sets off in me and, and in most leaders is feeling criticized, feeling judged, uh, not, you know, not feeling good enough. Uh, in some way. And if I don't have distance from the feeling of danger that I feel in that moment, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to fall into some knee jerk behavior that's going to, in that moment, not be with how can I learn, but rather how do I get out of this uncomfortable situation? And that might be to defend, uh, to deflect, to minimize, you know, to be aggressive back. Or some of us have also the, the over-the-top uh, response, which is, oh, I know, I'm so terrible, it's awful. And then I get so self-critical that you start trying to reassure me that it's not that bad. And again, we've managed to escape um, me engaging the feedback in a, in, a, you know, in a straightforward or productive way. Oh. It, huh. it's, it's interesting because, you know, obviously, I say the same thing. We, we both work in similar fields where we do a lot of company culture um, work. And the, the solution here you're talking about is you need a culture of trust and transparency. And that starts from the top. And that starts from the top, right? Mm-hmm. And the problem is the most difficult person to give feedback to is the boss. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. And so the you know how the best way is, I guess you got to make sure that you you're letting leadership know that hey, this is something that's top to bottom, and um, you know the people you have to be receptive to input and, and feedback if you're a CEO and you're a leader. Otherwise, it's probably not gonna feed down the way you want it to feel down in, in the company. Yeah, exactly, Teo. And the thing is, um, you know, Brandon said at different points, uh, he's like, I knew, I knew the, the cliche, it starts at the top, but I wasn't really owning that. I wasn't really modeling the behavior I wanted to see. And so I think it's not uncommon in organizations for, uh, each layer of leadership, CEO, you know, the chief executives underneath him or her, you know, the VPs, to feel like there's a lack of accountability lower down in the organization. You know, that people <clears throat> have excuses, that they're deflecting, they're blaming, that they're not, they're not really committed to what they're doing. And so we have a tendency to look down and say, oh, so-and-so is not accountable. But what is accountability really? Accountability is the willingness to to transparently call ourselves out and admit mistakes, uh, admit shortcomings, uh, look at where we have blind spots or gaps. And I would say that just about without exception or said differently, it's very rare. The leader who's, who's really transparently modeling and admitting uh, uh, mistakes or, or issues when they, when they confront them. And so if you're not doing it, for sure the people beneath you aren't. 
yeah. because it's it's too it's too scary. If I'm the only one who makes a mistake, then what am I going to lose my job? Yeah. So what are you modeling in the culture? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, then that sort of segues into the next one. What is the the blame game? What are the symptoms, source, and the solutions in this situation? Well, so the blame game, um, I think it connects in many ways also with the the problem of of silos, which is. <clears throat> And it, and it doesn't usually, you know, so the blame game of, of course is one side blaming another or one person blaming another for outcomes or for shortcomings. And that we all know from, from when we were growing up with our siblings, you know, that we shouldn't blame. But again, when I feel in danger and it's going to be my fault, my, my brain and my ego really goes into, you know, SOS mode. You know, it's, it's, it's a DEF CON or, you know, red or something. And so I'm just trying to get out of the situation. So I actually lose my rationality in that moment. And we'll often uh, look for other, other reasons why um, things didn't work out well. Now, I'm describing this to you as if it's a rational process. In the moment, I'm just having a flush of hormones typically, and I'm, I'm, I'm judging things. And so I believe what I'm thinking at the moment. And that's part of the problem is that we we often aren't skeptical enough of what we think. We're skeptical of other people, but usually we're really wholehearted believers of of what we're saying, and and we're not typically aware of just how much our emotional fear, driven by our ego, is um, is dominating our thinking. And so we can we can go into blaming. And usually, what happens in an organization, large or small, is that. <clears throat> is that people can start targeting each other. So uh, one part of an organization, you know, blames another, especially if they're supposed to collaborate together in some way or they're co-responsible for an outcome. Uh, the, other, the other side is a, is a good foil for why we're not achieving what we should be because they're not doing their job, you know, yeah. sales or operations. And, and the thing is, my experience of that in the organization is not, oh, you and I are in a uh, back and forth blame game dynamic. My experience is you don't get it. You're not doing what you should be doing and you're not willing to admit it. I'm fine. I'm doing what I should be. You're the problem. And so we, we tend to, to be pretty blind to the fact when we're frustrated with another side of the organization that they almost without exception have a mirror image set of judgments towards us and that we're just locked in gridlock. I mean, think Democrats and Republicans. So each side thinks the other side is wrong, but in fact, it's, it's not the content of their arguments that are a problem. It's the fact that they're all locked in um, these ego-driven blame game judgments. And until they're willing to actually work on their ego and, and step out of that and begin to have a different starting point, there just simply will be no progress. And what you see in Congress is what I see in most large organizations. It's, it's exactly the same behavioral dynamic. Yeah, no, that's, that, that's so true right now. I mean, even the solution based on what you're saying is that a leader must first call out the fact that there's a blame game going on um, and then, you know, take responsibility for anything. But then, you know, owning that part of the problem, the leader then sets the example for others to look in the mirror. Yes. So the right. I think I think the the practice there is to is, is instead of perpetuating the dynamic by by 
continuing to express the blame is to actually name the dynamic. What's happening here? Oh, we're, we're going back and forth and you're, you're blaming me and I'm blaming you and we're not going to get anywhere here. So one thing is to name it so that you're no longer just on a side. You're actually providing some leadership around the relationship. Yeah. Like let's, let's pause and talk about this. And then the second thing comes a bit back to what we were talking about before around dismissing feedback is how about I start with what I think is legitimate in your, in your criticism of me. Yeah. So I'm going to self-diagnose first. And that doesn't mean, you know, of the 10 things you tell me, I admit 0.5 of them. It's like, no, here's, let's, let me take an honest look in the mirror. And, and for the most part, we know what, you know, to, to a certain degree, what our contribution is. So like, what's true about that? Admit it. And the danger we think of doing that is that if I admit to you, Teo, and you and I are in a dynamic, what my, you know, what my fault is, I, I'm sure that you're just going to jump all over me. And you're going to use that, you know, to be right and win the argument. Whereas, in fact, counterintuitively, the opposite happens. Yeah. When we lead with vulnerability and we lead with admitting our own flaws, that actually creates empathy in the other person. And it also creates safety. Because remember, this blame behavior is a reaction to danger. So it's not – no one wakes up in the morning and thinks, oh, I'm going to go blame the other side what happens is we're in danger. And so we involuntarily blame. So if I lead with vulnerability and um, uh, self-disclosure, I deactivate the danger. And then the other person, A, feels safe. So their knee-jerk response is no longer engaged. And B, they feel empathy and they respond in kind. That's, that's, that's incredible. You, you, man, you highlighted it, the fact that Republicans, Democrat, that's a us versus them mentality. The way us versus them plays out in, in the office is is different, though. It's human resources is frustrated with operations and sales ignores HR and then everyone is mad at IT. And then there's just this climate of mistrust and performance issues don't get addressed. And um, when people are complaining about turf wars, what is the solution there? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So, Encore... Capital, um, the, the company that, um, you know, the brand I worked at provides an interesting case study around this. So they're, um, in the industry they were in, there was a huge, uh, cost constraint, um, in the, in the mid 2000s. Um, and so every company in their industry, of which there were 20 or more, was really, um, 
challenged to, to make a profit. And so the, the collective wisdom was that they needed to open overseas call centers. And so everyone in the industry started trying to open up overseas call centers in Costa Rica, the Philippines, India. And uh, three years later, not a single company was making any money. And most of them were losing money. And, um, and towards the end of that third year, Encore started getting traction with this group. And the reason why it wasn't working in Encore, and I can't speak for the others um, because I wasn't working with them, is that they were in a turf war with India. And so um, part of what happens is that when things don't go well and we blame and criticize the other side, um, <clears throat> and by the way, sometimes if we're aggravated or frustrated, that blame comes out directly, meaning I say critical things to the other side. 80% of the time, I don't say anything. I avoid conflict. And I talk with the other people on my side about how you're not doing your job. So there's a, there's often in a turf war and in this judgment mechanism, there's a big dose of conflict avoidance that's at play where I only talk to people that agree with me and I don't actually address the conflict productively in a, in a direct fashion. And so this was happening at Encore. And so they were blaming their India leadership team for what wasn't working over there. And of course, the India leadership team was feeling disenfranchised, not trusted. They had requests around what they thought they needed in order for it to work. But the U.S. team wasn't responding to that because they just they didn't think they could be trusted. It was this whole back and forth uh, turf war. And in our work with them, we were actually able to draw out some of what was going on under the surface. And to give you an example of how how the ego hijacks things, this is in 2007, 2008, 2009. So it's leading up to the financial crisis. And the crisis wasn't yet upon us, but there were a number of industries that were in dire straits and Encores was one of them. And so there were a lot of people in the US that were scared of losing their jobs. And they saw this call center in India as a threat to their well-being. Like if, if it actually works over there, Rand is just going to ship all of our jobs over there. Like, why would we try to stand this thing up? It's, it's like basically, um, we're the ones building the, the railroad so we can be, we can be shipped off. Like, that makes no sense. And that's the type of fear and sense of danger that doesn't usually get talked about in organizations. And Brandon, through this work, was able to draw out through multiple meetings how much fear people had, um, around that. And out of that, how they weren't actually committed to, making the India initiative work. And of course, it's not a, that's not a conscious thing. I'm not thinking, oh, I'm scared, I'll undermine the India thing. It's more just, no, but they're losers. They don't get it. They don't understand what they're doing. Like I'm, my, my conscious thought is very detached from my actual emotional driver. And as they worked through that and they began to build on trust and address some of these conflicts between both sides and, and actually build a sense of real commitment to the strategy, the whole India subsidiary took off. And um, when the financial crisis hit, 90% um, of Encore's industry went bankrupt. They either, they either went out of business or they got acquired wow. because they, they had nothing left. And Encore was doing, um, you know, was doing uh, huge growth year over year. Their stock price went up 1200%. They had 300% growth. And their, their subsidiary in, uh, in India uh, ended up uh, 
making, saving them $90 million a year, meaning that they were able to produce the same amount of revenue, but for $90 million less in cost year over year over year. That's a lot of money. And, um, and on top of it, it wasn't just a, you know, um, uh, you know, it wasn't just pushing them or trying to get a, a lot of work at them. They're actually ranked number 14 on India's uh, Great Places to Work list um, in, in 2013 because there was a real sense of inspiration and belonging and emotional connection to the, the U.S. company. So I say that because until we're able to address these underlying emotional drivers, we're not actually making thoughtful, productive, creative choices. And often we're really undermining the very goals we have. And as I said earlier, it's not a five or ten percent, uh, you know, financial hit to a company. It can be the difference between bankruptcy and three hundred percent growth. Mm. Yeah. No. When you put it that way, it's it's very. <laughs> it definitely uh, heightens the the level of urgency that we need to do that. But no, you're so mm. right. And that's why I wanted you to talk about that. I know, I know we're we're. I'm closing in on the uh, the last point here, which is uh, avoiding conflict. But you know, ladies and gentlemen, listening, what we've been talking about is just the best way to sort of have this a, a great company culture where things flow in a much easier way. You know, the, Shane has talked about how this missing feedback is detrimental, how the blame game doesn't suit anyone, and uh, he just talked about the us versus them mentality, and that doesn't necessarily do anyone any good. And he just said. It could be the difference between, you know, you having a significant amount of profit or you going bankrupt. Um, to, to wrap this part up and, and what a big part of the book is, is avoiding conflict. It's no secret. You know, this can be extrapolated to today's world, right? We live in a, in a world where we're in the most globalized time ever, but yet a lot of people are wa- walking in eggshells. You know, we've seen it in the political elections. We've seen it in international governments. No one wants to um, say anything for fear of... <laughs> Of, of seeming, uh, I don't know, for fear of being uncomfortable, essentially. You know, they, mm. they don't want to put themselves in, in a place where they could be judged. But why is this dangerous? Why is avoiding conflict something that's dangerous? Mm, mm. Okay, so a couple of thoughts on this, Teo, if I can. So one, just to, just to call something out around ego, because we have a tendency when we think about ego to think of the big abrasive personality. You know, it's, it's people's complaints about uh, often Donald Trump, you know, he's, he has a big ego because he's very self-focused. And I would say that there's like maybe 15 to 20% of the population that has that type of ego system. Most of us are more on the, the defensive side. So, uh, conflict avoidance is a great example of a, a under the radar screen, but very problematic ego driven behavior. Meaning, and by ego, again, I'm talking about what allows me to protect myself. So if I have a conflict with you and I don't express it to you directly, um, that, that's even if I know I should, it's usually due to, I'm going to have excuses. It's not the right time. Teo won't hear it. You know, uh, he, he's not open. But the real driver there is going to be something more emotional, like I don't want to be disliked or I'm afraid that I'm going to, you know, uh, I'm wrong on this and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, uh, I'm afraid of looking weak if I bring it up or looking petty if I say it. Like it's, it's these, these kind of visceral emotional judgments I have that cause me to hold on to the thing. And then in my mind, often spin and chew over the, you know, what's, what's going on in my head. And so we can hold on to things. And this causes, in fact, 
conclusions about other people, judgments about other people, misgivings and grudges to build up over time. And so one of the greatest causes of disconnection in relationship isn't actually the moment where we um, you know, address it. It's usually how long we've held the thing in and then either never said it or when we say it, because we've been holding it in for so long, it comes out in a torrent and it comes out abrasively, judgmentally, um, uh, in a way that's hurtful to the other person. And, uh, and then, of course, you get defensive because I said it awful. And I'm like, see, I can't say anything to Teo. He gets defensive. Well, yeah, because the way I said it was completely unhearable. And if you said it to me that way, I would have reacted too. So we have a big problem, which is we don't know how to dialogue about things. And, um, and I think one of the reasons why Trump, in fact, is so successful is that a lot of people are saying, well, finally, somebody's saying something. Because uh, otherwise, we're just walking on eggshells and being politically correct. And the problem is that neither of these two poles is productive. So uh, whether I'm abrasive or whether I hold it in, in both cases, I'm at the mercy of my ego and I'm perpetuating, I'm perpetuating conflict. And so if I just take my own personal example, because I'm more on the, I do both. I'm more on a conflict avoidance side, which is I hold things in. And then when I can't hold them in anymore, it comes out with anger. And, uh, you know, and what I saw uh, is a little bit what I was, what I was saying earlier. I see these, these behaviors, Taylor, they're rooted in our, in our formative years, in our childhood. And so, for example, I grew up with a, um, uh, with a stepfather who had uh, a temper and could be really caustic and critical. And we had a number of moments, but one in particular stands out where I tried to tell him something and he got really sort of verbally violent in my face. And I was 11 or 12 and it, it scared the hell out of me. And I just sort of took out of that, you can't tell people what you think. So I would hold it in and hold it in. And then when I couldn't hold it in anymore, I'd, I'd blurt it out often in, a, in an aggressive way. And so I had to learn to recognize how I just wanted to be right, um, that I was afraid of being wrong, that uh, I was afraid of being weak. And because I was afraid of appearing these ways, I would hold on to these things. And that I needed to be willing to um, take the risk of feeling vulnerable and saying something in a way that was open and exploratory and and also in which I searched to understand the other person's perspective so that um, so that I could see what they were seeing in a situation. And if I did that in this calmer, uh, uh, more self-disclosing way that I was talking about earlier, it allowed the other person to not feel in danger by how I was talking about it. And it activated their sense of empathy and willingness to look in the mirror. And then over time, we're able to have, um, you know, more, more productive conversations. So what you have, you know, in Congress and most companies is, you know, is, is a similar dynamic where people are holding in, you've got a few people that are abrasive and everybody's judging everybody. And then we wonder why our businesses aren't working better. Wow. Yeah, no, that's, that's such a, thank you for that story because that it, it's so interesting to really realize that a lot of these behaviors can be traced back to our childhood and we, mm. we don't address them, which is a lot of what you're talking about today in the workplace. If you don't address some of these things early on, they can then manifest themselves into other things that we 
um, then lose control over just because we never addressed them initially. And right. it's funny how here, yes, the book is about workplace culture, but a lot of workplace culture starts stems from you in the, as an individual and how you've addressed things and how you've sort of um, gone on through life. You know, a lot of times I, I try to remind people that we work for most of our lives. You know, you spend most of your life in the workplace. If it's not in school, it's in a workplace. And so, you know, the idea of siloing those behaviors sometimes can be taxing if, if you're having to tap into different personalities that's not truly who you are. So, um, yeah. 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 It's exa- it's a, it can be exhausting to keep that, you know, that, yeah. that front up. Yeah. yeah. So? And, you know, one more thought. Do I have time for one more thought? Oh, yes. Yes, you do. Please. Um, so just because you, you were mentioning when we were talking uh, before the show about your, your work in diversity and, and inclusion, and I think this is, a, this is an example of uh, – there, there's a link here, which is already between me and a colleague of mine or me and my spouse or partner um, or my brother – you know, people that are, that are similar to me, um, if my colleague is, you know, of, of, a, of a similar background, it can be very difficult to lean into these conversations for all the reasons that I was, uh, you know, I was talking about. So they can feel very charged for us. And so it's, it's uncomfortable to try to solve that. And, um, you know, these us versus them dynamics happen, uh, you know, all, all over the place. If in addition to that, we add in the layer of uh, a difference in gender or culture or ethnicity or, uh, you know, um, background. Th- this, this really causes everything to be amped up even, even more. And so in, um, in ego-free leadership, we have this story. One of the chapters is uh, told from the perspective of Amy Anouk, who is an executive on Brandon's team. And, uh, she felt like she was passed over a number of times uh, for promotions uh, in the company. And this is an industry that was very male-dominated. The, the leadership team was primarily male. And so she was really experiencing a lot of discomfort around, wait, you know, if I was a man, would I be getting this job? And why is this happening this way? And that's almost impossible to ask that question. Because as soon as she, if she were to say, Oh, I'm not getting this job because I'm a woman. Basically, what Brandon is going to hear, or let's imagine she's a person of color, what we hear on the other end is, oh, um, are you saying I'm, I'm, I'm sexist or I'm racist? Mm-hmm. You know, which basically in today's culture means evil, bad person. Like there's, there's, um, how, how I'm going to appear in that moment. Uh, I'm, go- I'm really going to have a, a dreaded image of, of looking like a, a, a bad person and, and a racist. And so, as I've been talking about before, in that moment, I'm just going to feel a sense of danger. Like this is not, I cannot look this way. And so I'm going to, I'm going to react. I'm going to deny. I'm going to explain away. And Brandon in the book talks about how he is really committed to being inclusive. And yet if Amy had raised the issue with him in a way where he felt like she was questioning his integrity or his, you know, his, his commitment around this, he would have just been in danger. And so how do we raise these questions in a way where um, we can actually generate a productive dialogue? Because maybe Brandon did have blind spots. Maybe if Amy's name had been Steve, he would have 
he would have promoted her and maybe he wouldn't. And maybe there were extenuating circumstances going on that Amy couldn't see that were, that were affecting things. And maybe it's a mixture of all those things. Like, how do we get into a, a productive discussion and exploration of all of the incredibly complex elements that go into a situation? Um, uh, already it's hard to do, but on top of it, when you have some of these additional elements uh, involved, it just gets so charged that it's almost impossible to talk about. And the, and the ego reactions that we have end up really hijacking our ability to have these delicate discussions. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's well said. And that's, you know, that speaks to the timing of the book. I was going to ask you why you felt this book is so important, but you just laid it out there. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, we, I always say we live in interesting times right now and, the ironic thing is we are exposed, we have the potential to be exposed to so many differences around the world, but people, a lot of people still don't know how to interact with these differences. And mm. the danger of that is, is, um, is people having siloed ways of thinking and that promotes a very us versus them mentality. So I, I mm. hope that, you know, as people take up your book, they start to realize the importance of addressing these things early on and how it can actually lead to one, not only humanizing more people but also financial and profitability gains so uh profitable yeah. gains so uh, yeah i want to thank you though thank you though for coming on where can people find out more about this book uh before we go so you can find it at all major booksellers uh barnes and noble amazon um there is of course an ebook <clears throat> there's also an audiobook that you can get at all audiobook um uh, uh retailers and uh, actually, Brandon, Amy, and I decided that because the book was such a uh, sort of personal offering of, of real stories, we recorded it ourselves. So it's actually the author's voice as opposed to narrator's. I think it, it gives it an extra element of of authenticity. Um, and then of um, there's also, if you go to egofreeleadership.com, uh, that'll bring you to uh, our website uh, for learning as leadership, where you can learn a little bit more about the book and about the author's. Um, and also about the work that we do with, with uh, leaders and organizations. Awesome, awesome. I'll make sure I'll put that in the show notes. Also, I'd like to ask my guest this last question. This is the, the mission statement of why I do what I do. Use your difference to make a difference. So how do you, Shane, use your difference to make a difference? <sighs> I, I, I think that I felt very different growing up. So I was, um, uh, I moved a lot. So I was often a new kid. I was small. I was skinny. Uh, I had a funny name. Uh, I got picked on and bullied a lot. And as I became, uh, a sort of an adolescent and a young adult, a, a lot of that childhood pain, I started self-medicating for it. Um, and, uh, so I, I ended up being, uh, r- really struggling in my, in my adolescent uh, and, and early 20s um, and just had a lot of, of pain and separation that I felt and that I was causing in other people because of all of these ego-driven um, uh, dynamics we've been talking about. And so I, I, you know, I somehow ended up with a very overdeveloped ego uh, with all of the uh, both self-promotional but also self-critical aspects of that. And, um, and today, my mission, uh, and uh, connected to the mission of our company, is, is really to help people 
heal the unnecessary pain that we create in our families, our ourselves, our couples, our organizations, uh, through all of all of these beliefs and fears and reactions that we carry around. So none of us want to um, have these dynamics in our relationships and our organizations, but we all perpetuate them because we're almost, without exception, all unconsciously at the mercy of these old triggers that then set us off. And so um, I just see so much of that hijacking the world today, whether it's at the smallest level, families and and, you know, in organizations or at the highest levels of, of government and international politics. And so my difference is all about anything we can do to help people be aware of how their self-worth is actually destructively driving their behavior instead of their purpose. Uh, if we can clean that out, we really have an opportunity to create a different, a different planet and different social context. Wow. Wow. That is incredible. I want to thank you so much, Shane, for coming on the show. Um, I mean, obviously, this this was a very heavy episode where you really talked about the important things we need to do as company, uh, companies and individuals. But I appreciate you sharing your expertise and you taking time. This is this is why you're a legend, sir. And uh, uh, thank you for spending the time. Um, really appreciate it. Yeah, but thank you, Taylor. It's been wonderful to be with you. Pleasure is mine. Ladies and gentlemen, till next time, use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.